All right, Fresh Life Church, as we continue in this series, The Last Supper on the Moon, it is my great pleasure to get to introduce you and as well, every church joining us uh, across the country and world through our partnership with the Oprah Network, my friend, astronaut Shane Kimbrough. Thank you for being here with us. Shane, you're the absolute best. Um, as the time of this uh, interview, Shane, newly back from, uh, from space, so this that you're feeling is gravity. Do you feel heavy? Yeah, this gravity stuff. How do you guys do it? I don't, I don't get it. But uh, learning how to do that again, and uh, it takes a little time. Yeah, come on. Um, Shane, on behalf of our whole church family and everybody joining in, I just want to say thank you for your service. Yeah. Service as an astronaut. Thank you. You know, you and your wife, Robbie, I got to be there for your most recent launch, and that's, that's a risk. That's a risk you're taking, and you've signed up for that. No one's making you. You're choosing to strap yourself into a giant bomb and, uh, and put your life on the line for all mankind. And so I know before that as well, you served in the Army, but for all of that that you do in your family, we just want to say thank you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, Levi. It's, uh, it's such an honor to serve. A lot of you are um, servants as well, and you, and you do service for your job or for just, you know, your volunteer time, and you know what it feels like. It's amazing to serve others, and I get the, the privilege in this position not just to serve humanity, but or serve the United States or the Army or my family, but all of humanity, which is really, really special. I brought a photo from the last time, because at Fresh Life, we've had the chance to talk to you a little bit. This is a photo last time we had the conversation... <laughs> You're in a distinctly different orientation, uh, but uh, that was a lot of fun. I, I just I think about life on the space station because there really is, there's no up or down, right? Yeah, that's completely normal, by the way. Yeah, um, it doesn't feel in weird? In space, no. So you don't have any blood rushing to your head. You can be in any orientation you want. And literally, you're having conversations with your crewmates in all different orientations, and, and it's completely normal. And they use every surface the same way. So everything's a wall or a table. It's... It's very incredible how the space station kind of works. It is. So, um, you know, here on Earth, you kind of just think of drawers maybe on the walls or on the side. But in space, you can use them on the ceiling or on the floor. And even our sleep stations, there's one on the floor, there's one on the ceiling, there's one on each side of the wall. So there's four sleep stations in a circle there. And again, it doesn't matter which orientation you're sleeping in. I can't imagine a worse place to, like, have a crewmate you don't like or, like, someone, like, you got beef with. You can't really go anywhere. You can't get in an Uber, right? I mean, true statement. So uh, lucky on all my missions, I haven't had the opportunity to want to do that with my crew because my crew has been amazing, and this one was no exception. I was just super fortunate. And my crew was made up of Russian cosmonauts, Japanese astronauts, French astronauts, and U.S. astronauts. So super diverse crew um, from many cultures, many nations, and it was just a privilege to be a part of that. Yeah. Shane, I'm holding here this that you brought back to me that I gave to you. It's the thumb drive containing the manuscript for The Last Supper on the Moon, which you brought with you to space. So thanks for that. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks yeah. for flying this thing around. Uh, I, I, I took a note of it. It went around just under 3,000 times around. You went 3,190. You sent this back a little early in an unmanned probe, and you emailed me, and you were like, hey, just sent your book back. It's on its way, which is pretty fabulous. Um, you've accumulated in your time as an astronaut 84 million frequent flyer miles. I wish. Okay, they don't, they don't let you uh, no, cash those in later? No, no, So, I mean, this mission was about 84 million miles. So okay, just crazy. this one. Right. <laughs> just, just this one. Okay, so not to include the rest of the other. Because you flew, first of all, in the space shuttle, uh, which is that black and white, beautiful glider that people have seen. Then you flew in the Russian Soyuz. And most recently, you were strapped into the SpaceX Falcon 9 with the Dragon capsule on top of it. The sexiest of all the spacecraft. <laughs> definitely more modern and very futuristic. So honored to fly all three. This one was definitely like you were um, going you know, forward in time versus kind of the 60s and 70s technology that I'd flown before. It was like Tron, right? The suits, <laughs> the whole deal. Yeah, it's pretty slick. So it was, it was an honor to fly it. Let me ask you this. Um, when you do spacewalks, cause you, how many, do you know how many hours you spent doing spacewalks? I think it's up to almost 60 hours now outside. Wow. So, yeah, leaving the craft to, to work on the space station. This most recent time, you guys added a whole new solar array capability that will draw more power and all that. Um, you know, we, I know you get asked a lot about going to the bathroom inside the space station, but how do you go to the bathroom? Because, like, you're out there for hours. So how do you go to the bathroom outside the space station? All right. So anytime you see us in a spacesuit, I'll just kind of break it down and make it pretty simple. Anytime you see us in a spacesuit, 
um, we have a diaper on, right? So this is a very glamorous astronaut life that we live. Um, is there but, like a more yeah. astronaut way to say diaper, or is it just diaper? Well, we, we like to call it MAG. We have acronyms for everything, right? Maximum Absorbent Garment. Oh, that's way cooler. So, yeah, the MAG. Yeah. So. Need one of those like on a long road trip, honestly. <laughs> if you have a few I could borrow, that'd be... That'd be yeah. amazing. No, so that's what we, if you have to go, that's how you go when you're in a spacesuit. So. Yeah, well, that's important, the details, right? I mean, like, even, you don't even take, you know, account of, like, showering, because you, you can't really shower in space. Turning on a water, it would just start flying around everywhere. True statement. Another glamorous part about being an astronaut. No showers for six months. Ooh. And uh, so My that's, kids would know, love it. If some of you guys could figure out how to do that, we would appreciate it. But um, we do wipe down. We clean ourselves, of course, every day. We're, we're working out. We're sweating. Um, and so you need to um, take some self-care and team care there so you don't mess up your buddies. But uh, it's very important. We just don't have showers, per se. So that's a weird thing when I get back to Earth. One of the strangest things is to get in a shower and have water falling on you. Your brain is freaking out. It, like, does not know what's going on. And it gets a lot of people sick Yeah. Um, just having this water fall on you. It's really strange. That is interesting. Um, you have your Bible. I have my Bible here. My, yours is a little different than mine because it has something on it that mine doesn't need. Velcro. <laughs> True. So, yeah. So this is um, the Bible I took to space this time. Awesome. Um, I got to... Uh, my, my bedroom for this trip was the dragon capsule that we flew up in. And so I had this thing just plastered up on the wall. You know, I'm thinking about it, Levi, if, if I didn't have it on there, it's kind of a new way of spreading the word, right? Oh, wow. So I could have done that, but I didn't think about that. Wow. But man, it could have just been all over the space station all the time. If only I had a drummer still, because I could make <laughs> a great sound effect for that. So yeah, but like, you don't think about that. Like, I can just set this down in space. You set that down, it just, it goes flying off. Right, as is everything. So you got to be real kind of particular when you're eating or when you're dealing with multiple things in your hands because uh, you're trying to fly around as well and um, you don't want to hurt somebody or hurt any equipment. Yeah, interesting. Even even something as simple as like preparing food. You get one thing like I'm making PBJ, I'm setting the bread down while I go get the peanut butter. <laughs> you can't set anything down really. Fair, uh, true statement. So the way we kind of keep things attached is by Velcro. But you can't um, Velcro your bread. Well, we don't really have bread. We have tortillas. And so the way we kind of hold those down is Spicy. by duct tape. Okay, everybody uses duct Wait, tape. Wait, you duct tape so a tortilla? We, we invert the duct tape so the sticky side's out. And then you kind of put your, your drink, your snack, your bread, your whatever, kind of line it up there. And that's how you stay organized and not lose things while you're trying to eat. Ladies and gentlemen, we have found a new use for duct tape. <laughs> Making a tortilla PB&J. Yes. Check it out. It's pretty good. Lennox did want me to ask you, what is your favorite space meal? Favorite space meal? Um, we had a, a lot of variety this time, which is always good when you're gone for a long time, because we had, um, like I mentioned before, Japanese astronauts and French astronauts. So we got really good food from them. The Russian food um, doesn't look very good, but it's very tasty. It's tons of fat and salt, and we don't have that in our diet up there. So once a week, we really enjoyed You're just floating that. over to the Russian module. Hey, yeah, guys, we'll have dinner hey guys down what there. you eating? Yeah, usually Friday nights, we'd have dinner down there, and uh, we'd, we'd reciprocate on Saturday nights. But my favorite meal, I think, um, actually was a pork chop. It was really tasty. Um, and that or, or chicken fajitas. So those are pretty good. So we have some pretty good options up there. We weren't struggling with food. We had plenty of it. That's amazing. Um, Shane, you, you mentioned you're in a dragon capsule, which meant you had windows. Most of the bedrooms don't have windows, right? True. Yep. And the world's going by uh, just at a pretty quick rate. I mean, how many sunrises and sunsets do you get a day? Uh, 16 a day. So we're going around the earth about every 90 minutes. Every 45 minutes, that means the sun's coming up or going down, right? Because half the Earth is dark, half is light. So it's pretty crazy. I imagine you saw a lot. And I know if you don't follow Astro Kimbrough on Instagram, you should. He documented throughout all his missions a ton of great photos. And you post some of the best ones uh, that you're still putting out there. Uh, but do you have a few in particular things you got to see uh, going by there among your highlights? Yeah, Levi, it's kind of crazy, honestly, that for me to truly appreciate our planet, I had to get off the planet right, and see it from that perspective. Uh, but I do, and I got to take some amazing pictures and share that with you folks or whoever wants to see them. Um, some of my favorites this mission, uh, we were just so blessed with so many auroras that were super strong, everyone different, but super strong. And, and one of my favorite memories was hanging out with all of my crewmates, all seven of us in the cupola, which is a, a module full of windows. It's very small, so we're kind of all crammed in there nice and tight. And it's upside down, if you want to think of it that way. So we're all upside down looking at Earth and just enjoying flying through the most beautiful, amazing aurora that God put out there for us to see. It was really incredible. Man, astounding. 
Shane, you guys had a couple kind of dicey moments where things got um, a little out of control. Uh, to, to use your words, this, a couple times the International Space Station tumbled out of control. True statement. Um, not planned, of course. It's never happened before. I, I wouldn't think so. Yeah, it's never happened before, and we got to experience it twice while we were up there, so a bonus. Um, but so, you know, what do we do in those situations? We uh, we're, rely on our training. Um, we know our crewmates really well. We know kind of everybody's role, where you fall in. Uh, somebody's the leader in those situations, and then the rest of us are just being the best followers we can to, to fix that situation. Now, how do we get ready for that situation or any of those situations? These, these incredible people on the ground, our trainers, the people in mission control as well, guide us through those kind of things. And so those are the, as you may, have, may know from Apollo 13 and movies like that, those are the true heroes of the space program or the people that are training us and are the ones that are keeping us safe and working in mission control to help us through really, really tough situations. Your second of your three space flights was, uh, you were the commander of the space station. Coming back, you were under authority, under the you were commander of the of the flight, but not the the time on Correct. space, right? right? What did you learn about kind of the underappreciated art of following that made how did it basically having been in charge inform how you followed someone else's charge? Yeah, it was definitely a different role. And when I got on board initially this time, you know, my brain just kicked in like I was the commander, right? But I wasn't on the space station. So I had to kind of throttle myself back, honestly, early on and uh, let the leaders take over. And uh, you know, being a good follower is, is part of our training as well. And, uh, and that was from the military as well as at NASA. So we do, do train that in pretty good. And you know, as a follower, you're just trying to make the leader look as good as they can, right? So I want to do the very best I can so that they shine, all right? It's not about me. It's not about, really, it's not about them. It's about our crew and about our interaction with all the mission control teams to get this incredible mission accomplished so that we can help everybody back here on Earth. Yeah. Last question. Um, John Glenn, the first to orbit uh, the Earth, he said that he, he didn't know how anybody could ever see that kind of creation and not come away with a, a belief in God. How did uh, seeing what you've seen, how has uh, observing what you've seen informed your faith? Yeah, it's, it, um, I was a Christian before I got to space, um, thank goodness, and uh, I kind of took that on as an as a early teenager, um, made that faith my own. And, but I, I was never, it wasn't like I was done. I was continuing to grow, and this just helped my faith grow as well. So when, when I got to look at Earth for the first few times from that perspective, uh, it just validated everything that I'd, I'd learned and been taught and believed in. And it's like, how can, how can there not be a God? Are you kidding me? I mean, look at all this beautiful majesty. And, and even that perspective is just kind of like what God sees, but not even as grand as what God sees. But uh, I really hope some of you can get to see that perspective one of these days because it's really phenomenal. Beautiful. Um, Neil Armstrong said that one of the reasons they didn't put their names on the Apollo 11 mission patch was because even though they got to go, it wasn't just Neil and Buzz and Michael even, it was the 400,000 and NASA. And so I know in your life, it's not just you, you have acknowledged mission control. And uh, we also acknowledge your wife, Robbie, and your kids, Taylor and Caitlin and Zach and your new son-in-law, Chase. And um, I know that you, you stand, uh, you know, getting the attention, so to speak, more because of your, your more prominent position. But it's on behalf of a whole giant crew that you're able to do what you do. Absolutely. It takes a village and uh, couldn't have done it without any of the people you mentioned, of course, and the incredible people at NASA and all the NASA control centers around the country and all the control centers around the world that really make sure all the missions um, are going according to plan. And if not, they fix them for us and bring us back home safely to our families. Astronaut Shane Kimbrough, everybody. Come on. Love you, bro. Thanks for being here. You're the best. And welcome to week six of the Last Supper on the Moon. We are taking some time uh, in this period of time to look at the seven different signs, that's what he called them, or miracles performed by Jesus, collected and recorded by John, the disciple that Jesus loved, a nickname, by the way, that he used to describe himself, the disciple that Jesus loved. I think that's because John knew what we need to discover, and that is that Jesus loves us, and that's the greatest thing about us. And John, he used that to describe himself because he realized it was ridiculous. I'm loved by Jesus. So you literally could think of and should think of yourself as as the one that Jesus loves, as John did. But in his book, he chose, out of all the different miracles that Jesus performed, because he performed a lot of them. He did a lot of things. He said kind of like sarcastically at the end of his 
book. If I were to write down everything Jesus did, it would fill up all the books in all the world. And uh, then it would be like half as long as The Last Supper on the Moon, uh, some might say. I've been getting lots of texts from people who are like, I'm not readers, but dang it, I love this book, which is kind of my favorite thing. Um, but, but in the gospel, he picked seven, which is a number that figures into the Bible and figures into the life of Jesus, and interestingly enough, does figure into, into NASA's origins as the first astronauts were the original seven. There were seven Mercury astronauts, and seven pops up again and again and again, not only in just life, but also in the life of Jesus. And he picked out of, this, out of the many he could have chosen, seven that build his case about why we should believe, like he does, that Jesus is the Son of God, number one, and that number two, if we believe in him, we will have life in his name. And so we've been looking at these, and we come this week to John chapter nine, to the sixth of seven. That means that if you're paying attention, last week is the final of the seven. And we are just believing God is gonna save something very special for the last, just as he brought the best wine out at the end of the feast in the first miracle. A morning on the moon lasts a week. Just consider that for a second. Morning on the moon lasts a week. Then it takes another week to get to sunset. And then night on the moon lasts two weeks. A whole week of morning, a whole week of afternoon to sunset, and then two weeks of night. The light of day is different when you're on the lunar surface a quarter million miles away is the takeaway truth there. Well, before us in John's gospel, the ninth chapter, we're gonna see someone who's going to see the light of day for the first time in his entire life, and it's gonna change everything for him forever. The title of my message is Flying Blind. Flying Blind. We're gonna wrestle with the question today Where's God when it hurts? Where's God when it hurts? As we see a man who literally, as we see him at the beginning of his story, is quite literally flying blind. But by the end of the story, we're gonna see and discover that it is in fact something that Jesus wants for all of us to admit that we can't see. When Neil and Buzz were landing on the moon there in 1969, one of the phrases you hear in the, the transmission, which you'll hear in the audiobook because we fortunately were able to include the actual historical audio. And many people who have been listening have been kind of surprised, maybe they didn't know, and all of a sudden they're hearing JFK, and all of a sudden they're hearing Buzz and Neil speaking with Charlie Duke there at Mission Control in Houston. And and, uh, and one of the phrases you'll hear Buzz say, just as they're about to land, it's the most intense thing ever because they've overshot the landing because when they separated from the command module, they picked up a little extra speed they didn't account for, kind of like when you open up a LaCroix, right? There's that burst of the release of gas. Undocking, there was a little extra oomph that came with it, and so they ended up several miles downrange from where they thought they were gonna be. And then they were using up fuel quicker than they, they, they counted for. And then the place that they were, the, the computer was going to bring them down for a landing on was just strewn with boulders, in their words, the size of Volkswagens. And that's, that's nowhere to land because the spindly legs of the Eagle were going to become the launch platform. So if they managed to fall over or not land upright, they would no, never be able to take back off. And the, the moon would be forever a, a, a tomb for these, these fallen astronauts. And so it's very important they landed on a flat level surface. Uh, but the, the phrase you'll hear in the, in the audio is at 40 feet or so is Buzz says, picking up dust, picking up dust. He starts to see this cloud of dust. And, and on Apollo 12, the next mission that came, uh, that cloud of dust came at 100 feet. But what, of course, he's talking about is the fact that the moon is not made of green cheese. It's, it's, uh, it's rock, and, 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 and the top layer of it is, is this sand. It's this dust. It's like gray beach sand. And, uh, and, and so as they came down, uh, the jet propulsion coming out of the bottom of their lunar lander uh, was, was causing there to, to be this, this massive cloud of dust. And the moon has one-sixth Earth's gravity, and so dust reacts differently. 
right? Of course, that's why they're able to take those loping steps. Everything weighs one-sixth what it would on earth. And so as the dust is settling, it's, it's taking its sweet time coming down and shooting away at bizarre angles. And so every single crew that landed on the moon had to deal with the fact that they were flying blind in the final, most important moments. And to think, looking out these windows, all you can see is a cloud of dust that is now kicking up. You're trusting that hopefully what you thought was a level you know, landing as you were coming the last final 60 miles there from lunar orbit to, to, to land and set down on the moon. You're trusting now that you picked a good spot and there's not concealed boulders or a crater or anything else that's going to cause this to be the last day of your life. And so they were picking up dust and flying blind. And for all of us, there are situations where we feel like we're flying blind, where we're moving through something and we don't really know what we're navigating or what to do, and I can't really see. Flying blind in our, in our day, it's actually origins come from World War I, talks about flying in a situation where there's low visibility and you don't really know where you're going. You can't really see what's in front of you. You're having to rely on your instincts or instruments or intuition and just to stick to the plan, but you're having to proceed almost by guesswork, kind of like if you've ever had to disassemble furniture and rebuild it without the instructions. Man, we're flying blind here, right? I, I don't know where this goes. I don't know what to do. I don't have a guide for what is in front of me. I am flying blind. I'm moving in the dark. I hope and pray that as a result of our consideration of these verses, that God would both help us to make sense of our darkness, of the hard things that we're facing, but also that God would give all of us, every single person at every single church listening to these words, the grace to help other people in our lives uh, to, to find their way through what they're facing as well. Let's read, starting in verse 1, John chapter 9. We can't read it all because it's a long passage, but I would hope and encourage you to read it all on your own because the pieces that we won't be able to go through really do add, add much to it. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born Blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, he is like him. He said, I am he. I love that. And I wasn't going to read that to you, but it's just, I think it's funny. I've got a great sense of joy out of reading that. Then what follows is a massive argument and interrogation uh, of this formerly blind man by the Pharisees, the, the Jewish leaders, and it involves his parents called in as witnesses, and, and they basically say, he's a grown man. Why don't you talk to him, right? He doesn't, he doesn't need me to answer. You, you need to talk to him yourself. And then it ends with the man being excommunicated. He's gotten his vision for just a few moments, and now he's been kicked out of temple worship, kicked out of normal Jewish life. And when that happens, Jesus, verse 35 heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, 
and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. So Father, if this is blindness, then we ask that you would help us to see that we're similarly in a situation where we can't see, to admit that, to acknowledge that, so that you can fix that, so that you can open our eyes. We know your word says in the book of Ephesians that you desire for the eyes of our understanding to be enlightened. And we know that it's possible, God, for us to to have extraordinary vision, see in the dark kind of a vision, believe even when it's horrible kind of a vision, but we acknowledge today that it begins. The journey to that kind of supersonic sight begins with us acknowledging we can't see. We're lost without you. And so I pray, Father, that the consideration for these moments of what happened to this man on this day would impact what you're doing in our lives in this place today. We don't always know exactly what to ask for, but we know that your spirit is praying in us even as we're praying to you. And so we acknowledge that and we let that come out through the same thing Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever we're asking for or thinking is the best outcome in a situation, God, we, we trust that your spirit might know and see something better. And so we essentially say the same thing we say in a restaurant when we see someone who's been there before who knows what to order. We'll have what he's having. We want what your spirit wants in this situation, not our desires, because it's so limited, it's so faulty. And I pray that if a single person has come in not knowing you as Savior to this moment, you would draw them to yourself. And for those of us who have been walking with you, following you for some time, we pray for a fresh revelation, a fresh glimpse of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are five different movements to this story that I think would help to sort of outline our studying of this this man's story, to, to see where God wants us to go. And the first is that Jesus' disciples see this man and immediately ask the wrong question. The wrong question is the first movement to the story. For as they're walking in Jerusalem, which is where they are, by the way, and the context of the previous chapter is a group of people took up stones to stone Jesus because he claimed to be God. None of this, Jesus is a good person, came to do some nice things, pass out some fortune cookie sayings, right, that we could collect into the Bible one day and be inspired every time we're feeling low, right? Jesus said, I am God. I existed before Abraham. I am the one who created the world. And in response, Jewish people took up rocks to stone him to death because they considered this to be an act of blasphemy. And immediately, Jesus passed through the midst of them, somehow supernaturally being able to disguise himself to get out of this situation. And as he was passing by, he noticed a beggar sitting by the wayside. Now, I would just point out to you that all the miracle that follows begins with Jesus noticing a need. Jesus noticed him. As he passed by, Jesus took note. Jesus saw. Jesus acknowledged. He saw a man blind from birth. I think at times we can become blind to the problems around us. But the only reason this situation worked out the way it did was because Jesus saw. Jesus saw the need. He realized. He opened his eye. He didn't turn away. He didn't pretend he didn't see it. He saw this need, and the disciples followed his gaze. They saw perhaps that he had stopped to take note of the situation. And they immediately jump in with a discussion about why this man is the way he is. Why is this man blind? Why? And the text says that he's blind from birth. Why is this person in the situation that he's in? That's the wrong question. The right question, the question that Jesus is preoccupied by and with, is what does God want to do in the midst of this situation? But it's human nature to want answers. It's human nature to want to understand. It's human nature to say, why is this happening? Which is to suggest that if we understood it, that somehow it would be better, but would it? 
Would it be better to have a perfect knowledge of it? I don't think so. Otherwise, God would have told us. God would have given that to us. Now, one day, the Bible says, we will know even as we are known. One day, we will be able to look back on our lives and look back on the days when our prayers seemingly went to voicemail in heaven and the days when, when, when we asked God for this and he chose to not do it and said to give it to someone else. And we will be able to see all of that. And I, I trust that on that day, we will look back on it and say, you have done all things well. If I knew what God knows, then I would want exactly to happen what he has allowed to happen. But the disciples not only want to know why this is happening, but they actually present the only, in their minds, two likely reasons this has happened. They, they, they ask him an either-or question. Did, did, did this man sin, and that's why he's like this, <clears throat> or did his parents sin, and that's why he like, he, he's like this? They're presenting these as the only possible two outcomes. And Jesus basically goes, nope, <laughs> nope. Did this man sin or did his parents sin? Is it one of these two things? And Jesus says it's a completely different thing entirely. When President Kennedy said, we're going to the moon and we're going to do so by the end of the decade and we're going to bring the men safely home who go, it is astounding to think about the reality that almost none of the technologies existed that would make that possible. I mean, it's one thing to just say that, right? Someone's got to figure out exactly what that's going to entail. And a big part of that, of course, was how big a rocket do you need to get a ship to the moon that can then land on the moon, that can then take off from the moon, that can then travel the quarter million miles back from the moon, and then safely make it through our atmosphere, which generates heat up to half the temperature at the surface of the sun on the way through, right? And then to land safely on this earth and go home and have some chocolate chip cookies, right? <laughs> and Werner von Braun, the rocket scientist who famously worked for both Adolf Hitler, Walt Disney, and then ultimately NASA, how's that for a resume? <laughs> he was the one who came up with the technology that allowed the Saturn V to be built and, and all of the rest, but he famously had the wrong idea in his head for how this was going to happen. He asked the wrong question. He had to admit that in the end, but the question he asked was, how are we ever going to get a ship off the Earth that overcomes the power of gravity, gets it off the Earth? How can we get, how big does a rocket need to be to get the ship off the Earth that can land on the moon? He was asking the wrong question because it wasn't actually a problem of how do you get the ship off the Earth that can get to the moon? It's how do you get the ship off the Earth carrying the ship that can land on the moon? For this is a photo of the Apollo spacecraft right here on the screen. It's a diagram, rather, not a photograph, of the Apollo spacecraft. The Apollo spacecraft is not just one ship, even though when it is flying in this configuration, it is one ship. But if you actually blow this up, it's three modules. And we have an expanded view here. Three modules acting as one. And when they flew separately, there was the lunar module, which on Apollo 11 got the nickname Eagle. And then there's the command module, which had the, the designation Columbia. But whenever they were flying together, it was just Apollo. But they had to have separate names when they flew separately. And then they, of course, look, we're from America, so we're going to have extra stuff. So they had a U-Haul they dragged with them, and that's the service module, all right? Well, the question everyone was asking was, how do we get the ship to the moon? Well, the question that needed to be asked was, how do we get the ship off the Earth that's carrying the ship that will land on the moon? For much like if you've ever gone on a cruise, the cruise ship doesn't ever pull up to the dock. It stops out in the harbor, stops out in the bay, it stays in the ocean, and you get loaded up into a smaller vessel at any of those little landings that you do on your cruise, and it's the smaller boat that takes you to shore and back while the bigger vessel stays there. That's how it actually worked out. The, the third person, the command module pilot, stayed in the main ship, the ship that, you see, because they had different needs. The ship that landed on the moon had different needs than the ship that would make it back through the Earth's atmosphere. And so the solution was not one ship doing this on one massive rocket, nor was it two rockets that had the two ships that would meet up in Earth's gravity, which was the idea for a while, in the Earth's orbit, rather, but the reason we figured this all out 
was by asking the correct question. It was a question posed by this man here, John Hubbolt. Now, John Hubbolt was the one who came up with the idea of one rocket with multiple ships going all the way to the moon, and the, sh the ship going down, Eagle, coming back up, docking with Columbia. And he had this theory, but he was like sort of a laughing stock around NASA for this idea that everyone thought was crazy because it's pretty much suicide to do all of this in lunar orbit a quarter million miles away where there's nothing that can be done if something goes wrong, these two ships rendezvousing. And when he came up with this idea, a rendezvous had never even been done around Earth, much less that far away. But in time, it was deemed the only feasible way it ever could have been a success. And this was someone who chose to ask the right question. Now, how do we get the ship off the ground? How do we get the ships off the ground? So that is what Jesus is helping the disciples see. Their question basically was based on human wisdom of the day. It uh, was thought that if someone was in some sort of a, a position of suffering, position of pain, infirm, blind, sick, as this man is, a beggar on the side of the road, blind from birth, someone had to have done something wrong. And this pain is an example of cosmic justice. Sort of like the two truths and a lie thing you'll see on the internet, like sweeping TikTok, right? Two truths and a lie. There was enough truth in what they were asking uh, for it to, it to be passable as, as reality because there is a gleam of truth in the fact that someone can sin and end up suffering as a result of it. You can do something uh, that, that ends up with you in prison or ends up with you in some sort of a, a position of pain or suffering, didn't listen, didn't obey, and now all of a sudden I'm dealing with it, right? You can make a bed and have to sleep in it. And it's also truth, true number two, that a parent can do something that causes their children to suffer as a result. But the lie is that every time you see pain, there's always someone specifically to blame. The faulty thinking would be, I can always figure out exactly who's to, to blame for this. Now, sin in general is the result of all suffering. That's an important theological distinction to make. Every time you look at any kind of suffering, sin in general is responsible for that. Because when you look at the world as God created it, he created it to be free from death, free from sin, free from rape, free from suffering of any kind, no war, no, no injustice. That was life in the garden. And he said, do not take from this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So all death, all suffering, all disease came into the world because of that disobedience. And it is interesting as well that the first example of human physical death would not be Adam and Eve. It would be in their son Abel. So they would have to grieve the death of a son, which is both uh, the most extreme agony I think a human can suffer, to not just see that suffering visit on them, but their sin did indirectly lead to the suffering of their marriage and their lives as they had to face the death of Abel, and then also deal with the sort of sense in which they had lost Cain, too, as he had slain Abel, his brother, their son. And so all suffering did come through the door opened by man to sin. So why is there suffering in this world? Ultimately, it's because we have chosen to, to depart from God's plan, God's intention, God's design, and God's decree. But it is not true that in every suffering, you can specifically say this happened because of particular sin, because of specific sin, because life on this planet has led to just pain and difficulty that we experience. And so it is a mistake to always look at sin and ask the question, why, when we should be asking the question, what? It's a mistake to uh, look at, 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 at suffering and say, who's to blame here? Who can we blame when God rather would have us to say, how can we help? For it will not help the suffering to have an explanation but it will alleviate the suffering if we can choose, like Jesus did, to model a heart of compassion. For the actual answer in every suffering to what does God want to do is release his glory. Why did this happen? 
ultimately because of sin, but specifically, I don't know. That's above my pay grade, right? The secret things belong to God. But what I do know is that in this pain, in this hardship, God wants to do something glorious. In your pain, in your suffering, and in any suffering you encounter, you can say glory. That's what God wants in this. I'm, I'm walking through, and I wrote on my sermon notes the name of four friends who I'm personally walking through great pain right now. Terminal diagnosis. Horrible situations. But I'm believing that in each of those situations, God wants to release glory, that God can release glory even through something as painful as leukemia, that God can release glory in this world, even when the doctors have said there's nothing more that we can do, that God even there wants to release glory. So why did this happen, the disciples said? Did he sin or his parents? Jesus said, God wants to receive glory in the midst of this, and I'm going to be a part of it. And that's where God wants us to live. Now, I would caution you in having pat answers or a small human understanding of what that glory could look like. Because we tend to trivialize horrible things with unintentionally misusing verses in the Bible that should give us hope, like Romans 8.28, right? We love Romans 8.28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Maybe one day we'll do a, a series where we just look at whatever the next verse is, next to glib verses Christians like to quote. And that's definitely one of them that can well in, 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 intended for sure, but be misused. Because the next verse says, for, her, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, if you don't read the next verse, you, you might not see what the actual good is. And so you look at something horrible and you go, God wants to do something good. Well, where is the good? The good might not be something that you could see, something that you could measure with the naked eye. It might just be you becoming more like Jesus by God allowing a hard, bitter thing to exist in your life. The good, ultimately, that God intends is his glory, and glory comes in this world as we become more like Jesus, conformed to the image of his son, which is God's plan for all of us. So let's not ask the wrong question, but let's believe that pain and suffering that God allows is always a part of his plan, and that no suffering is ever senseless. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it well when he said, that God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that there is profound richness in what God can do to get glory when he takes suffering away. Yes, do believe he can and at times does choose to miraculously heal or heal through the wisdom he's given to us in technology, in medicine, in science, and we should not be afraid of any of these things. But we also can believe that when God chooses to not heal, chooses to not act, that there is a way in which he is unlocking his glory by allowing a trial to stay that he clearly could send away. If you want examples of this, I would point you to read anything from any Christian leader or writer who's ever had to suffer agony. For in their writing, you will see a profound humility and sweetness that has come that's been unlocked perhaps by nothing but pain. Johnny Erickson Tata would be an example of that, who became a quadriplegic as a teenager as a result of a diving accident and has followed and, 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 and sought hard after God in the midst of her pain. She famously said, and I quote, I would rather be in this wheelchair knowing God than on my feet without him. And she has hope of healing. She has hope of, of using her limbs again. She just knows that full final healing will be after, in her words, she leapfrogs over the tombstone and is walking with Jesus in heaven. And in the meantime, she's being conformed to the image of his son through this gift of suffering and pain. Suffering is never senseless. That's the wrong question. Secondly, we see a strange solution. Can we just call it strange that Jesus' response to the pain in front of him is to hawk a loogie. I don't know how to say it other than that. I did go to three semesters of Bible college, but that's the best I got. 
He hawks a loogie. That's what he does. He spits on the ground. It's a strange solution. It's strange because it's unnecessary. And you know this guy, when he finds out that Jesus healed people without spitting on the ground later, because it's in the Bible, he's going to read it. He can see now. He's going to be like, wait a minute. Strange solution. Not only is this unprecedented as a miracle, in, in, in this man's own words, later on we'll find out, never in the history of the world did God ever open the eyes of one born blind. Many blind people see throughout the pages of Scripture. No one born blind until this man. Unprecedented miracle, also unprecedented means. Unorthodox means. One of the things I love about Jesus when you read Scripture is that he never healed the same way twice. Never healed the same way twice. He would do that. Like, even one time when he healed the blind guy, he kind of did it in phases where he, he's like, how's that? The guy's like, I can see kind of, but it's all blurry. Jesus is like, oh, really? Interesting. And I had to touch him again. He didn't need to touch him again. He could have given all his power in the first dose. He chose to do it in phases. Jesus, at times, would heal from a distance. Someone would be like, hey, come help. My servant's sick. He's like, all right, I'll go with you. And the guy's like, no, no, you don't need to go with me. You could just heal, me from, heal him from here, I bet. And Jesus is like, bro, sick faith. Where'd you get it, right? That's what he said. In fact, he pushed his disciples like, that's what I'm talking about. That's what I want in this guy, that he knows I could heal from a distance. He knows it's not about the, the mechanics. He knows it's not about the mud. It's not about the spit. It's not about the pools. It's not about the touch. It's not about the place. It's about me. It's about believing in me. And it's about saying, whatever I say to you, do. That's what, that's what that guy realized. He said, you're an authority. Just say the word. He'll be healed. Just don't even come to my house. Don't waste your time walking here. Whatever you do is what's going to happen. And, and Jesus was in awe and complimented the man's faith. In fact, he marveled at the man's faith. The word marvel is interesting. Outside of, you know, the Disney empire, it's still amazing. But to marvel, that's what God wants us to do looking at the moon, to marvel. When I look at the sun, when I look at the moon, when I look at the stars, I marvel at the work of your hands to realize how big God is. That's what that man realized. That's why Jesus marveled. He only marveled two times in the Bible at the abundance of faith and at the absence of faith. Interestingly, the man who, marvel, who he marveled at his huge faith was a Gentile and had no reason to have faith in the God of Israel. But the people whose faith was absent and Jesus marveled at their absent faith were people from Jesus' own hometown. More than anybody should have had faith. But as Jesus put it, at times a prophet gets honor everywhere he goes except in his own hometown, because there people can get familiar. Oh, we have access to it all the time. It's no big deal, and so God can't work through it in the way he wants to. But what Jesus does do in this situation, in this strange, situa strange solution, is, is a hint of the gospel, is a picture of the gospel. Because 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of of God. You see, God could have healed this man in any way, but he did it in a way that's almost insulting. It was almost insulting to, to put mud on the, on the man's eyes that, that was made from saliva, to send him off stumbling his way through, through the city to find a specific fountain where if he washed his, his mud off, right? In a way, if you think about it, Jesus actually made the situation worse before he made it better. Because even if you have full vision to have mud on your eyes, it's going to make a, a seeing man blind, just as it here is they're making a blind man eventually see. So the, the point is, he did something intentionally insulting, comically foolish, so that the mechanics would, would be in place for the man to need to exercise faith in Jesus to get him to where he ultimately wants him to be, not just with sight in his physical eyes, but sight in his spiritual eyes, not just rescued from blindness, but rescued from sin by putting his faith in Jesus as Lord. And God could have done anything to save us, but he chose to do something that's intentionally foolish. So you're telling me a guy who was born 2,000 years ago who was a carpenter by trade, born of a virgin, died for me on the cross, and if I believe in him, I can have salvation? That feels as ridiculous as, as walking through the city with mud on your eyes looking for a specific 
fountain to wash your spit mud off of your eyes. It would, easy, it would be easy for this man to not obey. It would be easy for this man to not listen. Just like when the children of Israel were dying of snake bites and God told Moses to build a brass serpent and put it on a pole, he said, if anyone looks at the serpent on the pole, you'll be saved from your snake bites. People would say, that's stupid. How could that possibly save me? It doesn't make any sense. And they would die. And they have no one to blame but themselves for God chose to give an intentionally offensive, foolish cure. And so I present to you Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. And if you believe in him, you will not die. You will live. And you would say, it doesn't make any sense. I, I, I can't add that up. As I, I, right? And, and, and you would be right. God chose the foolishness of the message preached to be the means of God's power into our lives. I like that this also shows that the, the, there is healing in the going. There's healing in the going. There's healing in being sent. There's healing in being on mission. Jesus Jesus sent this man to a pool called Sent. The pool, Siloam, the pool called Sent. I, I just love this picture of how am I going to see what God wants in going, in sending, in taking that first step. You're not going to watch God's power flow through your life until you take that step of faith, signing up for that small group, putting yourself out there to begin serving, putting yourself out there to begin giving. I'm telling you, there's, there's something that happens when you just go. I don't know how it's all going to work. I'm just going to go. I'm just going to try. I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to take that step. I'm just going to, I'm not going to stand back here with just mud on my eyes, wondering what would happen if I would be willing to be foolish, if I would be willing to stumble my way through it. The healing, the power, it's in the sending. It's in the going. Genesis 24 has always meant a lot to Jenny and I's relationship. The coming together of Isaac and his wife, uh, Rebecca. And how did the, the, the bride and the groom come together? That the, there was someone willing to just step out and being on the way, leading uh, by, by going. Then God began to lead them. He didn't know where to go, but he just said, I'm just going to set out and just try. I'm just going to trust. I'm just going to put myself out there. And God led them together. The third phase we see is a distorted fixation. A distorted fixation, which is in response to a man seeing who's never seen in his entire life. This is literally the light of day for the first time coming into his eyes. The response is for the men to critique this miracle rather than to praise God that it took place, to argue it shouldn't have happened the way it happened, <clears throat> which is, by the way, Jesus' whole point. He could have picked any day to do this miracle. He chose to do so on the Sabbath. And as you read the Gospels, you will discover Jesus performed no less than seven miracles on the Sabbath day in a way that violated not God's plan for Sabbath, but their perverted understanding of how Sabbath was to take place. And he did so because they said, no one can, they would go around chiding people. No one can work for God on the Sabbath. No one can work for God on the Sabbath. Jesus performed works on the Sabbath to say, who do you think I am? I am, you can't perform work on the Sabbath. Only God can. I am that I am is what he was communicating in this. Their fixation, though, was on what they could do for God but there is nothing more deadening to your soul than basing your life on what you can do for God. Because that ebbs and flows with how good your week's gone, the strength of your, your quiet time, the power of your ability to overcome temptation. And if you live by it, friend, you will die by it as well. And you will constantly be exhausted. And there's no power to save ourselves but we always turn back to it and gravitate towards it because it appeals to our ego. Because then we feel like we have something to stand on when life's unfair to us. Bad things shouldn't happen to me because I'm a good people. Friend, there are no good people. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we're really looking for in living that way is leverage over God so that he has no choice but to bless us. But the soul that sins shall surely die. All of us are experiencing pain because of our own sin, not just Adam's sin. So Jesus chose to do this on this day as an intentional violation of how they thought God should operate. He was ruffling their feathers to give them a chance to see a life like this man was experiencing, where they didn't stand on what they did for God, 
but they could rest in what God has done for them in sending his son to this world. Religion says do. Do, 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 do. Do these commandments and you will live. But at the cross, God said, done. It is finished. Paid in full. You can have a relationship with me of dependence and trust, not based on what you can accomplish that week, but on what I've done for you once and for all. And Romans 16 gives us great advice because the church at times still has people in it who want to get it back to what we can do for God and want to make big arguments and cause divisions and and split hairs. And like these here on this day, as I've always said it, want to sort of split hairs and care about that, split theological hairs more than saved lives. That's what God wants us to focus on, people coming to know God. And there are times people who want to use church as a weapon against people instead of medicine to help people. And God wants us to always focus on what he's done for us and how we didn't deserve it so that we will be disposed to help, predisposed to help other people come in and be welcomed into that journey. Romans 16 says, now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses, who just want to argue contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. We should focus on the main thing and keeping that the main thing. And that's what we see in this man's next phase of his journey, which is living with vision. He has a brand new life, and he has to figure out everything about what his life's going to look like because his entire identity was previously wrapped up in being blind. And so he would do nothing but sit there begging because he was blind. But now he could see. And in that one moment, and by the way, the morning he woke up, he thought that day was going to go like every day had gone prior to it, having no idea that everything about his life was going to change that day, which is where I believe we should have a sense of expectation every time we open our Bibles, every time. Because what changed his life was his encounter with Jesus. And one encounter with Jesus, one moment in the presence of God can change everything. God can impart some. Everything can change on a dime in a moment of time. And as we encounter Jesus, who is still alive today, who is still moving through his spirit today, who is still building his church today. We can have encounters with God fresh every single day that give us new insight to look back differently. He's now, he's now not a blind man. He can look in a mirror and see his reflection for the first time. And what he saw, he needed to now do something about. It was okay to look one way when you were blind. You had no way to deal with your, 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 your appearance in the same way you could seeing. But now in seeing, there's a call and an opportunity to live at a different level. Now I know, now I can, now, I, now I, don't, I, I don't have to sit there by a gate looking to others. I can live differently. I can work with my hands. I can get a job. I can now begin to help other people. A new life requires a new plan. And that new plan would, would ebb and flow based on his ability to maintain a sustained obsession of love and appreciation for the one who gave him sight. One of the best verses in verse 25, they're arguing about whether Jesus is good or bad or should be allowed to do this or not. And the guy just says, I love it. <clears throat> whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And may God help us to see that I, that, that is our story. Uh, you, I don't know about all that. I don't know about what this that you want to argue about. What I'm really talking about is Facebook. Uh, but here's what I know. I know I was blind, and now I see, and that's my story. I know I was blind, but now I see, and that's what I'm focused on. And that is how this man lived with vision, grateful to see. And then lastly, this story, I believe, is an invitation for us all to take a part in an active participation with God, an active participation. Jesus hinted at it earlier in the text when he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. For Jesus has at this point begun to drop hints and even begin to overtly tell his followers, I'm going to leave. Not only to go to the cross, but after the resurrection, I'm going to go back to my father. And he says here, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But what about when he's left? Well, Matthew 5.14 answers that. As he speaks to his church, what does he say? You are the light of the world. It's interesting to me that you can't look at the sun directly without hurting your eyes. But you can stare at the moon for hours. 
And when you do, you are safely looking at sunlight. It is in this sense, church, that I believe we are the light of the world. We're not the light of the world in that we have anything to illuminate, we have anything to give, we're what the world needs, but we are like the moon in that we have been entrusted with the light of the Son of God, and it is that light that we get to shine in a way that can safely show that light to the world. They can't see him, but they can see us. Apollo 12, the one right after 11, it was a big deal that they brought with them on the journey a color camera. All the black and white images of Paul 11 were so last mission, but now they were going to broadcast in color, and they had hyped it up. You're going to see color footage, color footage, color footage, color, color footage. 42 minutes into the first moonwalk, astronaut Alan Beam, Bean accidentally pointed the camera at the sun, and the optics fried the camera's capability to broadcast anything at all. Couldn't see anything. And so for the duration of the mission, only, only thing people had on Earth was to be able to hear but not see anything. So the, the networks had to choose what, the, what are they going to broadcast to go along with this audio footage. So they maybe made a mistake, whether, whether this was the right call or not, uh, chose to show rehearsal footage of the astronauts ahead of time practicing for the mission on, on, in fake situations and simulations. And this, by the way, is one of the reasons that has fueled the conspiracy theories to this present day, that that footage was, oh, it's all fake. You can see that they're marionettes on strings. Well, they didn't have any choice. This dude fried the camera. They had to play something. You couldn't just look at a, a, a color block while you listen to the footage coming from space. But I love the picture of, I can't, I can't broadcast because I've, I've looked at the sun. It fried the, the optics. The, the, the truth is that the, the world that can't see God has been given in our lives what they need to see, the reflection of God's goodness. That's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure. What treasure? The treasure that's light has been given to us in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We're like the moon. We receive the light that is then to be shined out. And that light that shines out, if we're willing to live a life where we are marked not by what we've done that's so great, but we have the humble, simple reality ingrained in us that we didn't deserve salvation. We weren't saved because we did something great. We... <laughs> We can't brag on that anymore. And this man could be like, I'm so, so clearly awesome that Jesus spit on me, right? That we would realize I, I didn't deserve it. I'm not anything awesome, but I know this. God loved me enough to save me. And that light of kindness and compassion shined out can make a difference in this world. But the point is, if 2 Corinthians 4 is true, that our treasure is in an earth vessel. How did God make man? The same way he remade this, remade this man's eyes, using dirt. That's what Genesis 2 says. The light in us, it's in an earthen vessel, a, a clay jar. And if we shine the light that we're meant to shine into this world, we will see this miracle take place again and again and again. As what? As God uses clay to bring a cure and mud to bring medicine to a hurting world. And so, Father, we pray that it would sink back into our hearts. I don't know a lot. There's a lot of pain I, I don't understand. There's a lot I, I can't figure out to get my head around. But this I know. I once was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I am found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I pray that the sweetness and the power and the glory of that truth would so shine the light from our hearts as to reflect it to a world that's struggling to breathe in the dark. If as we're praying, if you would be honest and, and vulnerable enough to say that there's some pain, some hard situation in your life that you don't quite understand, that you don't, you don't know how to make sense of it, but you need God's help, you would just say, God, I need you in this, in this painful situation. Could I just ask that you would raise up a hand in the air, just acknowledging your need, every location, every church. Thank you, Jesus. Bless these. I ask for your specific plan to come to pass, for you to receive glory in the midst of what they're facing. 
whether that's in taking the trial away or allowing it to remain, but to be used for good like crushing. I pray there would be a richness and a sweetness and a developing of faith that it would be like gold that comes forth even more pure because of the fire. Bless these with your spirit and your strength and insight. You could put your hands down. And if you're with us and you've never made a faith decision, never made the choice to give your life to Jesus as Savior, I want to invite you to make that choice, not to do something so that God would finally, from heaven, put a gold star in your chart, but that you would rec recognize you can't do anything because it's already been accomplished for you by Jesus, and that in his name, you would receive life. If that's you I'm describing, and you would say, Levi, I want to give my heart to God today. I'm going to pray a simple prayer. I want you to pray it with me, out loud to God, believing it in your heart, Church, say it with us. No one praying alone. All of us praying together. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I can't save myself, but I believe you can. Please come into my life and make me new. I give it to you in Jesus' name.